This is Malvin Mills. Around the time we released his tribal album on proper records, Dr John did a couple of shows in England. One of them was a festival which also featured Van Morrison. Chris Barber was a Pyramid Vans band, and while I was backstage watching Dr John's set, I found Chris standing beside me with his trombone. Sometime during a song, he wandered on stage unannounced, blowing away, and joined the band. At the end of the number, Dr John introduced him to the crowd as the great Chris Barber, and he stayed on for the rest of the show. Afterwards in Mac's dressing room, Chris told me that he had some recordings he wanted to release as a double album, and we agreed to meet later to discuss the project. When we got together a few weeks later, I was flabbergasted at the rich variety of material he'd chosen to include. With Alan Shipton's liner notes and plenty of rare photographs from Chris's collection, it was released as Memories of My Trip back in 2011. Then in 2016, when I started The Last Music Company, Chris asked me to release an unissued album he'd recorded in New Orleans with Eddie Bowe back in the 90s. It was another revelation. We got talking about Memories of My Trip again and decided to reissue it on The Last Music label to see if we could reach a new audience. Towards Christmas 2018, Chris and I talked on the phone about the possibility of doing some interviews in the new year for the BBC, but following a nasty fracture early in 2019, he sadly decided to retire from performing. Chris and his wife Kate were still keen to get the record reissued, and so I dug out this podcast from the archive to help promote it. Trevor Dan's marvellous interview with Chris about memories of my trip is a lasting testament to one of Britain's most influential musicians of the 20th century. So, here's Trevor with Chris Barber, recorded back in 2011. Welcome to the podcast. We have a very special guest, and here is Muddy Waters to introduce him. Chris Barber! Chris Barber! That's the beginning of a track from Chris Barber, Memories of My Trip, and we have with us the great-grandfather, I'm calling you, of British rock. Chris Barber, do you mind that? No, I don't mind it. It wasn't my intention particularly. I don't <laughs> mind rock, but I was looking for the blues, really. What I was thinking of was that you, you did that all that work with Lonnie Donegan, who, which created Skiffle, which meant we had the Beatles, and you brought over all those blues acts, which kind of gave us the British blues boom. You were a very influential person in all that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's nice to have done something worthwhile, really, and uh, I wanted to hear good music being heard. And uh, the driving force in the very first place was that the the rather misconceived and, and useless uh, ban with the British Musicians Union, not allowing American musicians to play in Britain, meant that we couldn't get as musicians we really wanted to get, you see. We wanted to play the jazz better. And you learn that best by standing alongside somebody who's playing and you're playing as well, you see. But we couldn't do that. I suddenly realised that the, the singers are hardly accepted at all in the American Musicians Musician Union and not welcome in the British Musicians Union, you see. They're both catered for by the Variety Artists Federation or in the England or the American Guild of Variety Artists in America, you see, who don't mind it in the least if people on the other side come over and work there as long as they pay union dues to them. So we had no difficulty in getting uh, blues singers in. Um, the only question was which ones to get and how to present it and how to convince people to put them on, you see. We were much more popular than we realised at the time. For 
three years, we had a trad boom and we were it. I was going to ask you about this because the tra- the trad boom of its time, it was the biggest music in the UK, I think it'd be fair to say. And, th- and there was that rivalry between the trad people and the but modern there wasn't. jazz people. At the time I'm talking about, there wasn't. We started out as Chris Webber's jazz band in 1954, May 31st, 54. And I think Akka started up in 57 and Kenny in 58. No one had sunk in. There was this amazing boom th- thing going on. And if they had, they might have done something about it. We made sure to, because I'm the mathematician initially, you see, I was able to count and and work out what things cost and what things ought to cost and what you ought to get. So, you know, I was able to get decent money for the things we did, and we were filling halls all over the place, you see, in Britain. But it didn't get noticed to the point where all of a sudden, you know, we were getting noticed and becoming in the newspapers, as it was, in fact, with the blues things in, 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 in sort of 61 or so. You see. Chris, what was the attraction for you of the trombone, of all the instruments that you might have been attracted to? Why the trombone? It's not very easy to get on the bus, is it? A trombone player who I knew played Hamilton's band, uh, Harry Brown by name. He saw me watching, he'd see me every time he played anywhere. And, I would, and then he tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to buy a trombone? All I could think to say was, how much is it? He said £6.10. Now, the thing was that it probably wasn't worth that. I know it wasn't worth that. But still, I had £6.10 in my pocket. I could think of no reason not to buy it. So I bought it. Let's uh, just pause for a a little uh, example of you and your trombone. This is uh, you playing with Mark Knopfler. come to work with Mark Knopfler, Chris? We had a BBC Radio 2 series and uh, we guests on it. And we were getting guests in for it. We had people we worked with before we knew. Uh, they came along and joined in and then uh, called up his office and he said, yes, I'd love to. So he came along. Not only that, having done that, which was quite a long time ago now, um, when this record came up, I said, you know, could I use those tracks? He said, yeah, sure. Now, that's pretty good from a person who's got a, a career, a high-level career, playing mu- popular music that's, that has to be nurtured, you know, I mean, in, in a business sense, you see. It is a star-studded collection, isn't it? You've got Eric Clapton on here, you've got Van Morrison, you've got Jules Holland, you've got Jeff Healy, uh, the list is endless. And it goes right back, as you were saying earlier, to um, Brownie McGee. Well, that's the way it began, because it was his song that began it, you see. I mean, This was... is the song about you and your band. Well, that's right. Of all the... Hundreds of blues artists who came to, to Britain and, and to Europe from between about 58, well, we started in 57, between then and about um, 64 or so, when the novelty had worn off and local heroes were doing it instead, you see. So up to then, all these almost entire black musicians, because it's black music, they played with every band of, of, any, of any consequence in, in the blues field, like the Yardbirds, the Animals, all those, and I think the, the Stones when they first started, all, all kinds of bands and on the continent too, had these people working with them. And now, the blues artists who came over have always said you know, that it was great. There was actually work in Britain doing it, but in America there wasn't much. But the only one who ever wrote a song mentioning any of the people was Brownie McGee. 
And Brian McGee was, saw himself as a, as a professional. He, he wasn't sentimental. Well, of course he was, really, but he didn't like to show it. And um, nice thought, you see. Mind you, at the time, we, we just thought, well, it was very nice. And felt was it usually made a terrible balls up a sleeve notes they wrote for it because they had transcribed what was on the record and they couldn't understand his accent. Well, if they can't, people in New York can't understand South Carolina musician's accent, what the hell are they doing doing the job? You know, however, they couldn't. So um, it didn't occur to us at the time that people like him weren't doing the same thing like Billy Preston with the Beatles, for example. I mean, it, must have been, it couldn't have been not interesting working with them. Let's hear the Brandy McGee track, shall we? This is uh, Memories of My Trip. How can I forget Memories of my trip Give our will my records And tell all of my friends like this Oh, yes, from Birmingham to Bristol, from Bath. We're talking with Chris Barber. His uh, album is Memories of My Trip. That was Brownie McGee. There's lots of other people on here. I want to talk about uh, Ottilie Patterson. What a great singer. You were married to her for a long time. You worked with her when she was just coming out of Northern Ireland. What an unbelievable voice. And we're going to play this track from 1962, St. Louis Blues with Ed Hall. Now, introduce this for us. Well, uh, Ed Hall came to Europe to do a tour with us, you see. Uh, he came to London first of all. We actually recorded a few things. Went to Germany. We arrived there and had a concert the first night in Cologne. And that's the concert that's recorded there, which was recorded without our knowledge by British Voice Broadcasting. Right? And, we, and we got the tape about, we found about a year later, they had the tape still. Talk to me about Ottilie, who sadly died earlier this year. I watched a little clip on YouTube last night, and I remember her from radio sessions in the 50s and 60s, just thinking of this woman with this massive voice. And I think I probably imagined she's a very big woman, but absolutely not. What? How extraordinary. I, I think in a, in a later life she put a bit of weight on, but then people do. But um, the point is that, um, yes, she, she had a marvellous understanding of the blues, and um, we were up against, in a sense, because she was with my band and my wife, in fact, there was, we were all part of, the, of a musical thing which all the erudite jazz critics wouldn't hear of us being worth even to, talking about because we were the trad. Well, A, nothing wrong with trad, it's just a small bit of jazz. But if you like it, you like it. It's not, it's not offensive, and sometimes it could be more thoughtful, but then we didn't do those sort of songs, you know. So... Really, Ottilie never got the the, the um, recognition she ought to have had there. This is, a, as you say on the sleeve notes, this is a spine-tingling performance, isn't I mean, it? I mean, all I can say is her ideal singer and mine would have been, or still is, uh, would be, maybe Staples. There's no, no one can move people like that else but her. Now, in 62, earlier the same year, we played at President Kennedy's Washington Jazz Festival. A lot of people were there, including the stable singers. They weren't on the same show we were on, but they happened to be around when we were playing our show, you see. And after the show, they all come up and um, crowded around Ottilie, say, will you record with us? And she was too scared. Shame. Well, she said, I can't, I can't say like that. Well, she could, but she didn't realise it. And within six months, she made that, that one track there, that's the New Blues, which proved, because you, you could hear, it's so similar to Mavis Step. It isn't a copy of Mavis Step, but it's, it's all the things that make that kind of singing go and work, you know? Let's hear it now, it's fantastic. Lord, she dragged my man round Ah, 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 Now, it wasn't for powder 
that's Osley Patterson with your band in 1962. I want to move on four years now. So this is 1966. Let's just think about 1966. This is pre-progressive rock. So here's uh, a piano and organ player called Keith Emerson, later to be of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Uh, now he's with the T-Bones. He's at the Marquee Club, where which you have an interest in. And you're playing with him. Just paint the picture of, of the Keith Emerson of this era. Then, well, he was just a young musician and he a very good organ, organ player. The rest of his group weren't as good as he was, um, especially the leader of the group, who was Gary Farr, who was a son of heavy, heavyweight champion Tommy Farr and all that, and didn't, he sang like it, unfortunately, as well. You know? I mean, he loved the music, but it didn't mean much. So, But, but the, the, the group was called the T-Bones, and subsequently, the, the, it was when Gary Farr had gone, it was called the Nice. And it's because Lee Jackson's on the bass on this, isn't he? Exactly, it's because he is indeed, yes. So that was the beginning. And, and so Keith loved that, those black organ players like Jimmy McGriff and all those people. And, he just, and I used to go and sit in with them. I did, I did a guest spot for a week in a, in a, in a club in France with them. Now, how cool was that, though? Because uh, even in those days, you must have been a kind of father figure to these guys. No, I don't think they thought of it that way. I don't, that hadn't been all put in logical d- description of what, what, what happened by then. Not really. I mean, what's important at the moment to write, I suppose it does arise in a sense, you know. It was good fun playing with him. Anyway, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fine musician. Funny because we recorded four tunes, one of which Gary Farr sang, which is pretty awful, and the other, one which I made up, which was a kind of a gag, but it didn't work anyway, so it wasn't even funny. And then two other ones, which are both uh, of the same ilk, you see, and that was one. And the other one's called Silver Meter, which is by another, another of the black organists. Uh, Silver Meter being a train. Um, and... Uh, uh, the, but the better side was rock candy, and indeed, so and I, I just assumed that he was a big star by this moment. He wouldn't want that coming out. He said, no, you do what he does, what he was doing. You see, so I didn't, didn't even ask. You see, and then um, about God knows, about two years ago now, it's a little bit later. You see, I noticed in, on Amazon or something. I, I noticed a list of there's this record of Keith Gervais and like from his from his childhood on, onwards, and there was the track. It said, it said with Chris Barber, very nice, but he hadn't asked me about putting it out. <laughs> you see, I mean, he didn't need to, but I mean, he hadn't. So I, I just got on to the man. I said, listen, uh, you know, um, I want to put this record out. And he said, yes, of course. He was sort of saying, how much are you going to sue me for? <laughs> so, well, he wasn't in the business side too much, I don't think. People so. who grew up listening to things like Tarkus will be amazed by this. This is a really spontaneous musical performance by a guy who yeah. I think arguably took himself a bit too seriously later on. What do you think? Well, I mean, well, I mean that may be part of the act. I mean, if, if you get an act going, you've got to keep the act up, you see. Some great playing on this. Keith Emerson uh, with great the T-Bones. Drummer. Al- Alan Turner's a great drummer. Who gave it up, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I, tried to, I was going to offer him a job about 15 years or something ago, and uh, then it, I wasn't... He was in the rag trade. The rag trade. Yeah, right. the rag trade. But it was a family business, I think. I uh, don't think he went into it off in cold blood, you know. Here we go. Yeah. Here's Keith Emerson. <laughs> Talking with Chris Barber, Memories of My Trip is the CD. I've got to ask you about something you were telling me before we started, about Ken Collier, because I accused you of being the great-grandfather of British rock, and you told me a story about Ken Collier, which I dare you to repeat. Oh, I'll repeat any time. Ken, Ken was a man of a few words, and some of them were swearing, and some of them were just kind of abrupt. But... Um, 
someone approached him, he said, and said, oh, you know, what do you, what do, you do with your skiffle and everything else? You, know, you, you must be the father of British rock. And he said, and it's a very funny accent, Kenny, you've got to, I can try it. If I thought I was a father of a bastard like that, I'd fucking shoot myself. Anybody who knows him will know exactly what, 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 what it was <laughs> Parental like. Parental advisory it. alert. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, well, there was a trad boom, was the thing, everything. There was no competition at all. We had it to ourselves. No one knew about it. It wasn't mentioned in the papers that it existed. Everyone was going to it. Everyone was going to it. We were playing to crowds. Everywhere we went was full. And um, in spite of that, even good businessmen among the promoters didn't even think of it somewhere else in a bigger place. They didn't. I had to push them to do it, you see. A good example, about 10 years ago, I had a great time when Van Morrison was still, like a tour, had a touring band, was still touring and doing work, working, and being the most successful, successful touring rock band there had been in, in Britain of that type. They could book a date three weeks in advance and sell out a thousand seat places, 20 quid. That was 10 years ago. You know, that's sort of easy. Now, we did a concert, we had two concerts uh, I had as part of Van's band, Newcastle City Hall. Now, it's an old fashioned 3,000 seat town hall. And we played there, and it was sold out two nights. So I said to Van, well, that was for so, so, so I'll do it again next year. He said, no, I can't do more than that. It'll be three years before I can do it. Dare do it again. I thought, that's interesting. In 1955, my band played that city hall five times in the one year, all sold out. And Van was worried about doing more than two in one year. There's a fantastic thing on YouTube. I was just looking while you were talking to see if I could find it because I saw it last night. And it's a, a film shot in, I think, the very early 60s, possibly the late 50s, is it, of you and your band playing in a small club. In Woodgreen. It's a film which was um, made by the British Film Institute, was directed by Carol Rice and Tony Richardson, both. Absolutely, and uh, who know how to wield a camera. I mean, it's beautifully directed, isn't it? And and Walter Lassley, one of the world's, at that time, most favoured film cameramen. He captured what was happening in in the so-called trap room. That was only 55. They came to the Woodgreen Jazz Club about seven weeks running and filmed what they could, you see, and put them all together. And it's, and it's called Mama Don't Allow, I've just found it. But I would um, strongly urge anybody listening to this to go and find this on, on, on YouTube. There's a, a nine-minute film and then a 12-minute one afterwards. What it just shows you is that when people talk about the 1950s now, it's always kind of seen as, well, it's pre-Beatles, so it didn't really matter, and it was all Dickie Valentine. Actually, this is, you know, it's tried jazz, but it's rock and roll, it's jive, it's a really lively scene, isn't the it? Same, the same scene, it just developed on, because in the end, the rock and roll songs are rather easier to remember and do than, than traditional jazz things, which is more, you know, improvisation is quite complicated for you to listen to. But I mean, they did listen to it, and you've seen in that film perfectly well illustrated. And um, we had that scene... For three years, it was so strong that if we could, I did fill three thousand seats in, 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 in New York on time, five times in one year. Then why weren't they putting us on in the big in the Gilmore cinemas over the country or on football grounds even for God's sake? Which they could have done, couldn't they? Except you didn't have loud enough amplifiers, I guess. Well, if you went to Anfield in those days and you went to uh, to a show and you've, you heard them playing Our oh, When the Saints Come Marching In as they did every week on the Tannoy, you perfectly hear the Tannoy, but really powerful. But they're very good speakers. It's like big cinemas. Some of the best sound systems always had. The concert halls are terrible because they were designed for people who didn't use microphones, you see? In principle, they, that was the point. So, no, but, but we could have done all kinds of things. But Now, let me ask you this, because you, you, you disagreed with me earlier when I said that there was some kind of rivalry between the trad jazz scene and the modern jazz oh, scene. There but there was, wasn't there? I mean, it, wasn't, it was a bit like, you know, um, rockers and mods and so on. It wasn't quite like that, because the trad jazz people were not actually mods. 
the modern jazz scene were very much tied. You could tell what what sort of suits they wore. I mean, you know, they were certain kind of people. But they never sold records. They never sold, no, people didn't go to. They, they, they were playing in places with two hundred people. We played with two thousand. That is no judgment of the quality of the music because it's another another kind of music. But um, battle only existed when 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 other musicians who you knew would cross the road to avoid talking to you because you were a trad band leader. Because that I, didn't catch the public at all. Right. The public, none of the public can understand Charlie Parker anyone they can now. Coltrane, you know, I mean, they would have couldn't understand and didn't want to particularly. In the end, certain fashion things came along, fashion in music and fashion in style and, and, and personality and, and sound, meant that the things that became acceptable now, but what most of what you hear are the ones that, the, you know, there's no creativity in it at all. Mm. It's not bad music, it's just boring. So the modernists, the Charlie Parkerites, the trad jazz was too bland because it didn't have outrageous discords in it. <laughs> well, you don't have to. So the Squeaky gate music. Post, what do you do with Bach and Mozart? You know, uh, are they worth having, worth thinking about? Of course they are. Let's just go back yeah. to this uh, double CD, Chris Barber, Memories wow. of My Trip. I was saying to you earlier that I think it's beautifully sequenced. I'd expected it to sound a bit like a compilation album, a bit like a kind of archive of handbags and glad rags, as it were, from all over the place. And it's, it's not like that. It really feels, it listens very comfortably. Did you take care in with the sequencing? Yes. Yes, enormous amount ago, over and over and over again, looking at, thinking about it and wondering if I could dare put that on or should put that on. And I, I wanted to get a, see a sequence in it that carried, the way it carried on, what various people who, who, I, who I knew and liked and, and really wanted to, to have in, in this thing because it was all part of what I was thinking about. But the interesting thing is that, that some people who spoke about this record thought Memories of My Trip was my trip. It's not. It's, it was the blues' celebration, you know, of the trip it's had without we have us having the luck to be able to get it happen, get make it happen. Let's hear some music from somebody else who's playing a big role, I think, in, in keeping this kind of music alive and in celebrating its heritage, and that's Jules Holland. Yeah. You've played quite a lot with Jules. Yeah, yeah. He's um, so much more, isn't he, than the character you see on the television just walking around and waving his hands. He's a really accomplished musician. I mean, I'm personally, I, I, I don't understand half of the things he has on his programme as, as being worth even... Looking at, it, let alone listen to it. I can't see the point. You see, but then I'm probably too old for it. I think, but he does a good job, you know. And he's he's very sentimental about the music. He loves the music. He does his best to play it well and and, and present it. The, the main thing is he's found a way of presenting really good music, you know, much of the most of the time at least, you know, to people who otherwise probably wouldn't have listened to it. I go along and play with his, with his orchestra show for nothing, time and time and again, when I got to spare time because I enjoy it so much. It's very genuine, you know. Let's hear one of the uh, tracks on your CD that features him. Do you want to choose one? The better one is Winding Boy Blues. There's Jules Holland uh, with Chris Barber, Memories of My Trip. Uh, as Chris says, it's uh, Memories of the Blueses' trip, 
as encouraged by me. Through many years, as, yes. <laughs> and others. As and curated others. by you. And if it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fine record, Chris. I wish right. we had much longer. We, frankly, 20 minutes, not long enough. We could do 20 years on this. Are you, um, are you still going out with the Chris Barber band? Of course, it's, it's the big Chris Barber band, because no, it got bigger 10 years ago now. It's, uh, because we wanted to play, we always wanted to play early Duke Ellington stuff, the Cotton, Cotton Club era Ellington stuff, from the very beginning. But we only had six musicians in the band, then seven, then eight, but only only one front line. And you, three horns don't work on Duke Ellington stuff, you see. And we played some of the tunes with more simplified harmonies, in effect. It wasn't satisfying. So then, then eventually we met up with Bob Hunt, who's a great expert on Duke Ellington and his arranging, how it's done, that kind of arranging, what you do. And uh, he had his own band in that line running before. And uh, so he got with us, and we, we, we found some other musicians who were keen on, as we were on doing that, so we enlarged the band. So the band suddenly became, became uh, uh, 11 instead of 8, you see. Um, of course, our, our agent was worried about it, because it, you know, <laughs> yeah, but there we are, we, we wanted to do it. So we did it, and um, we're still doing it. Um, we've lost our wonderful blues guitar player, John Slaughter, to, to cancer last year. It's very sad indeed, because we're, we're not going to find another one like him, I'm afraid, because there's no incentive now for a young blues guitarist to work out how you play Duke, early Duke Ellington stuff. They could be earning more money in a blues band anyway. So they were, it won't happen again, but John Slaughter was brought up by his elder brother, who was a jazz fan, you see. So by the time he got his guitar and was play, playing, trying to play, learn to play it, uh, he already knew some music, and he, he wouldn't have been able to ignore thinking, how would you play that then? And he, he could indeed Can do I just it. say, by the way, that the, uh, the John Slaughter track on here is pretty, absolutely pretty, brilliant, pretty, isn't pretty, it? Pretty, yeah, very pretty, that's yes, right. What's it? It's called another sad another one. Another sad one. The, the, the tune goes another sad one. It goes in the tune, you see. And uh, there's no no more to it. I mean, if I, it, maybe someone could someone could could put lyrics to it. You always add them onto it. Or something. Anyway, look, moving swiftly on. Uh, let's go on to a last track to come out on. Well, there's two gospel tracks that I, I love very much. I mean, gospel is, is is vocal music, and it's it's also meaningful in its in a sense. You see. Uh, sometimes simplistic, but uh, but um, we had worked with Professor Alex Bradford, who was a, a music director, in fact, of a big choir in New Jersey. But he was, he played in, in London with a thing of Black Nativity, which is a gospel song play. And um, anyway, we did some recording with his actual group, which was the lead singer in, in which was was Madeline Bell, as she came to England in the first place. We worked in recording with them, which actually VJ bought a black soul record label in Chicago bought it. So they said, we, we don't know who we're going to sell it to or what we're going to call it. We've got to have it because it's wonderful. So they did. And um, anyway, later on, we we had a, a, a 25th anniversary of, of my first band, which didn't mean much really, in 1974. And we arranged to get Alex Bradford in to come and sing with us you know, on, 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 on the, some concerts. We did a whole set of concerts. Um, 20, 20 shows or so around Germany and, and uh, Holland and, and Britain and other places. Um, and um, he'd been a man, a singer, who sang with a backing group, a proper, a proper gospel backing group. And we hadn't got one of those, only us, ourselves. You see. And people say, oh, you, you sound awful. Well, I, it doesn't. You see. And there's a, it's a lovely, a lovely thing. It's, it's, a, it's a song which Bradford himself wrote. Couldn't keep it to myself. It's a, a very good gospel song. And the thing is that my then front line, John Crocker, Pat Hancock, and myself, um, I won't, you know, no, not one or the other, uh, managed to do that. It's a hell of a thing because it, it lasts about eight minutes or something, so on. you've got to keep the pressure up all the way through it, doing it, the backing, and sound convincing and rhythmic and powerful. And, and we did, and um, I like that. So that's, uh, that's, that's my favourite last track then. Chris Barber, thank you so much. Okay. It's been uh, a great privilege. Uh, let's hear that final track now. Okay. 